Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Freshly. Meal kits are a thing of the past. Freshly is the new way to get dinner on the table in no time. Their chefs send you delicious, freshly prepared meals so you can eat better without any of the work, no cooking or cleanup required. Delivered to your door fresh, their meals are ready when you are. Just heat them up when you're hungry. Freshly chefs and nutritionists make sure that every meal is all natural, nutritious, and made with high-quality ingredients. So now you can come home late and still have a delicious chef-cooked meal waiting for you. Just choose from their rotating menu of 30 options. I'm a huge fan of the steak peppercorn, but here's the problem. I've been traveling, and I come home, and it is gone. My kids have devoured them, so send more. I'll be home for a while. Plus, the easy cleanup makes it simple for me when I'm on deadline or have a story to break. Try Freshly, and you'll see what it's like to put zero effort into making dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash Woj, W-O-J, to get $25 off your first order of six meals. That's $25 off plus free shipping at Freshly.com slash Woj, W-O-J. Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Joining me in studio in New York today, Denver Nuggets owner, Josh Kroenke. Josh, how are you, man? Very good, thank you. Can't complain. And if I do, nobody listens, right? (laughs) (laughs) You've been, uh, I don't know what clock you are on right now. You were, you've been in Denver recently, you were in LA for All Star, and then you've been in London, kind of joining up with the Arsenal uh, board there. So you've, uh, you're waking up not quite knowing what exact time zone you, you should my be in. body yeah my body's a little confused um was over in london for several weeks uh january february came back for nba all-star that went back over this past week and then i had to come back here we had an nba uh committee meeting get scheduled uh here in new york and so here i am and figured i'd pop in and say hi to you well great to have you in now last night as we're taping this on wednesday morning Denver loses a late lead to the Clippers and you're jockeying with them for that last playoff spot right now. Mm. How do you watch games when you're traveling, when you're outside the country? I mean, obviously most guys in the league, you watch on your iPad and get in, but is it easy to watch? Do you, will you get up in the middle of the night wherever you are to watch or wake up at four in the morning based on time zones? How, How do you do it? Yeah. I mean, you know, technology is a wonderful thing. You know, via the, the league apps, um, and, you know, connected to Wi-Fi, I can really get our games almost anywhere. You know, so I'll sit up over in London and, um, depending on what I have going on the following day, I'll usually stay up watching a, a late Nuggets game or a late Avalanche game and do the vice versa when I'm back here in the States, except for it's getting up early. Um, you know, those, those, sometimes those 1245 London kickoffs are a little, a little early when you're out in Los Angeles or in Denver because with the seven or eight hour time difference, um, but it's fun. I mean, that's that's why we're in this business is uh, to support our teams and uh, you know, win, lose, or draw. We want to be there for. Josh, we're going to get into Nuggets and, and NBA and and a little bit about your pathway into running the team now. But th- there was a name for the average fan, I think, that was in the news last week that may not have been as impactful for those of us who you working in the NBA, me covering it. The passing of Dan Fagan, who. Was certainly a prominent player agent in the league and really for a span of years, one of the most dominant forces and really a force of nature in a lot of ways. And I know you knew Dan well. 
You worked closely with him. You had a lot of his players in Denver, especially early on when you took over. I know this. I don't think I've ever known anyone quite like Dan. Is he, in your mind, be one of those people that you just – there was no one quite like him. Yeah. Dan was a really interesting guy. Um, I mean, I was absolutely floored to hear the news uh, when I was over in London a few days ago. Um, you know, I just uh, – Dan and I hadn't spoken in quite a while, and he reached out to me uh, over All-Star Weekend uh, just here recently, and I had breakfast with him last Tuesday. <laughs> And so uh, to get that message um, about his tragic passing was uh, absolutely flooring um, for me. But, uh, you know, Dan, as you said, I mean, he was a he was a unique character. He was aggressive um, when he needed to be, always had his players best interests in mind. And, you know, he was he was he was interesting to deal with uh, from my standpoint, because he like I said, he always had his players backs to the end of the day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if, if you were a player, that's the type of guy that you wanted in your corner for sure. Yeah, I think of when I started covering the league and like sort of the when I was at Yahoo and sort of trying to get calls returned and get people to recognize like hopefully they would they would deal with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dan to me was a landmark. Remember calling him, didn't get calls returned early on. He didn't know who I was. And, And I think as I maybe broke a little bit more news and my name kept coming across his periphery. I remember introducing myself to him at Summer League one day, and it was right before Ricky Rubio. I think Ricky, he was working on bringing Ricky over and uh, to the Wolves. He had drafted him two years before. And um, I remember I walked up to him and introduced myself, and he looked at me and said, I'm going to have to deal with you, aren't I? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I, I hope so. And from that day, um, yeah, just a force of nature and a – I learned – so much about the league and about Dan just looked at things differently. And, you know, Yale Law School and his mm-hmm. beginnings were son of a steel worker in Connecticut. We didn't grow up too far from each other and uh, not a great student and sort of got his life turned around with, with a particular teacher he had. Went to Connecticut College, goes to Yale Law and becomes friends with a classmate at Yale, Chris Dudley, who gets picked in the fourth round of the NBA draft and needs someone to help him do his contract. And Dan works with him on it and gets certified and says, hey, maybe I can get another client and another client. And there came a time where Dan was, you know, represented a lot of the biggest players in the league. And as you said, did it aggressively, held players out, forced trades, moved mountains to get players either paid or into what they would they felt were better situations. But I had a GM the other day say to me, with the passing of Dan that you'd see Dan on your phone and he's calling and he's like, you'd stiffen up. The adrenaline would start running because you were going to have to deal with something with him, right? Like you, <laughs> you, you know that feeling? Absolutely. You know, I think back to some of my early conversations when I took over uh, my position with the Nuggets, uh, we had several of Dan's players and, you know, you had to be on your game at every point of the conversation because Dan, like you said, was incredibly intelligent. And he would pick up little things that you would say. And if you down the road, he would use, try and use those words against you, <laughs> um, as any brilliant negotiator would. And, um, you know, it's, it's incredibly tragic, like, like we said, but, uh, you know, I think he leaves behind a great memory and a great legacy of who he was as a person because he really, he really pushed the envelope, um, for his players. And like I said, I know if I was a player, that's a guy that I'd want in my corner. 
You think back to those early days for you, Josh, when you were transitioning into the ultimate leadership role in Denver, and you walked into a situation with the Nuggets where, as you mentioned, Dan, Dan had several Mm -hmm. clients on the team. Dan had strong relationships in the front office. There was a lot to navigate for you (laughs) and maybe a lot of untangling to do in some ways to sort of, I don't want to say rest control back, but (laughs) rest control back of where the team was then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, and in dealing with Dan specifically, but there was, there was a lot of interesting conversations and dialogue when I first took over, especially with Dan and throughout those tough conversations with him, I actually learned a lot about the business. I learned a lot about myself and, you know, one of the, the amazing aspects of who Dan was fundamentally as a person, obviously, like we've talked about, um, you know, his intelligence and his aggression for his, for his clients, um, but he would always, you know, he'd, he'd, after every kind of scenario we would go through, um, he'd, he'd give me a week or so and we'd, we'd, we'd set a time to set on, to talk on the phone and we'd do a deal review and, uh, we'd kind of go back through the different things, the pros and cons. And so I think he knew that I was, I was hungry to learn, um, and it was going to be around the business for a long time. And so even though, uh, he was tough to deal with, he taught me a lot. Your father is Stan Kroenke, one of the preeminent pro sports owners in North America and now in, in Europe. Josh, you, you know, you played basketball at Missouri. You went there on a scholarship. You played for Quinn Snyder. And then you went on to, you interned in the league office. And you, I know, wanted to learn the league a little bit from the bottom up mm-hmm. to be able to run a team. When you were sort of really being groomed and educated and, and uh, trained to be able to move into, you know, the president governor role in Denver, who did you learn from then? Who did you kind of seek out and say, what's important? How, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. You know, there were lots of different people over the years. I think one of the, the lessons that my dad and, you know, my mom and dad, and then also, uh, even my grandfather when I was younger, I, they thought it was very, I always thought it was very important in listening to them to, take bits and pieces from people that you admired around you and then try to make it your own. I think if you try to, you try to go out managing or doing anything in somebody else's way, I think that's, 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 a, that's a tribute to who that, that other person might be, but it's also, a, you're discrediting yourself because you're not, you're not being yourself. And, um, so I, you know, I mean, I, I got my feet wet. I mean, I remember my first meeting stepping into the, the role that I am with the Nuggets was to fly to Baltimore and, uh, sit down with Carmelo and his representatives and they asked to be traded. I mean, that seems like a lifetime ago at this point, but we were able to kind of navigate that. And I leaned on my, my dad quite a bit, um, just for general advice. And then, you know, talking about my internship at the NBA league office, you know, that was back in the days of commissioner Stern. And, uh, I was actually, it worked in the player programs department, um, with Chris Chin, who's now at the mm-hmm. MBPA, Mike Bantam and uh, a gentleman named Satch Sanders as well. And, you know, those guys, they all just provided unique, different perspectives about basketball and uh, their different relationships around uh, around the league. Walking into the league, um, walking into that role at the time of the Carmelo trade, which when we look back on it, became really the gold standard in the end for how you trade a star in terms of the return. I mean, we've seen players in the last couple of years, high-profile players in the league, who you could make the case, you know, certainly comparable to where Carmelo was in the league then. Maybe some people would look even value even more. And the return you guys got was tremendous. You couldn't get that return now. Mm-hmm. You had hired at the time, which was a very inexperienced 
front office executive and Masai Ujiri. Mm-hmm. Both of you were young and starting out at this. And, and I remember like you hired Masai and everyone, the first thing was like, who is that? Right. <laughs> and number two is like, well, these two are going to get trampled, right? Like that's all you heard when you hired yeah. Masai. Mm-hmm. Now I remember, uh, kind of some of the noise, uh, around that hire and, I've known I known Masai since he was a scout for us. Um, back when I was a college basketball player, um, I would kind of come out in the summers and I'd be working out, and I, I sat in on lots of draft meetings um, just because I was curious. I would sit in this in the back corner with a, a young scout named Masai Ujiri, and I think everybody knows who he is at this point in time. But even back in 2011, uh, 2010, excuse me, when I hired him, you know, not a lot of people knew who he was, and I think Masai. Uh, myself and Pete D'Alessandro, you know, all kind of complemented each other in, in different ways and in, in really good ways. And, you know, ultimately we kind of were able to get a pretty good deal out of it, make, make the most, make, made, made lemonade, I guess, out of, out of lemons. But, um, you know, we still, I mean, hey, we lost a great player, um, but we made the most of the situation. I think, you know, you said we set a, a standard, you know, as much as I would love to, to say that and, and feel good about myself. We were in a unique situation heading into, you know, uncertain labor. Um, and so there were lots of factors coming in, um, that we tried to all kind of play against each other, uh, in order to create a scenario where there were multiple teams and lots of, if you can create some uncertainty there and you have an asset such as, you know, Carmelo Anthony, uh, you know, you, you, you gotta play your cards pretty close to your, to, your, <laughs> to, to the vest. And then, uh, you know, ultimately we made a decision that I think was good for, for everybody. I think that trade scenario was sort of the beginning of, I want to say it was a transition point in how the league was covered, but it was at a time where, this is how I remember it, it was the first big trade, or as I you kind of call it, the superstar sort of hostage situation, right, where it's going to play out over months, yeah. <laughs> we, we've got them, and like the guy wants to be moved, Chris Paul went through it, and that was a little bit, but I thought that was the beginning of a different news cycle. In the it, NBA, do you remember it that way? Uh, absolutely. You know, I I still don't really do much social media, but I remember Twitter. That was the first time that I truly understood the the power of social media and instant information. Um, I think that you know I, I grasped the concept of what was happening leading up to that, but you know, back in 2010, I don't think people quite understood the power of what what you could do with 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 a with a mobile telephone with a cell phone. And um, a smartphone, I guess. And I think that, you know, it was it was incredible to me because you would literally have a conversation with someone, hang up the phone, and within f- five minutes, you know, it was out. <laughs> and, you know, it was it was incredible to me because you really had to, like I said, you kind of, you know, you had, you had to keep your hand as close as you could um, and not show your cards because there were lots of competing agendas going around. And it was a wonderful story uh, for the 24-hour news cycle because it involved a true superstar in Carmelo Anthony. Yeah. And I look back like it sits on my Twitter account, but like it always says like when you join Twitter. And I always forget. <laughs> and I think it says I joined in 2000. And nine, it was night of the draft. And so you're saying, you know, we, this was 2010. I was thinking of that All-Star Weekend in this past All-Star Weekend. I remember the last All-Star Weekend in L.A. was in the middle of the Carmelo. Yeah. So it was near the end <laughs> oh, of yeah. the trade deadline. And I remember never leaving my room that whole weekend. <laughs> I remember that All-Star Weekend. I just remember being in my hotel room, being on the phone because it was before this year where they moved the uh, trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, moved it up. And so, uh, what was the most harrowing moments 
of that process. When you think back to you and Masai and you said Pete D'Alessandro, who was in your front office, moments you remember about huddling or are we doing this right or is this going to – like what do you remember about that? Because it, it lasted – it was months worth of mm-hmm. of this and it was a daily saga. Oh, yeah. I mean – the meeting, my first meeting that I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, that took place in Baltimore, that was in, I think that was in late July and, uh, kind of in the dead period, uh, kind of the, 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 the slow days of summer. I don't know if we have any of those anymore. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was after summer league. It was kind of, I think either the first week of August or the last week of July, you know, a couple days later, the story broke. And then from that point forward, I mean, we were under a microscope. I was still kind of finalizing the Maasai hire. Uh, I think he knew what he was stepping into, and I think he was excited about it, which is obviously a credit to him. And, uh, you know, we ultimately, I think that the the only advice that my dad, I distinctly remember my dad giving me, was to take our time. You know, at the end of the day, uh, we did have, you know, a, the, the superstar that everybody was after. And, uh, you know, if you could, could kind of sit there and create a market out of it, even though that he had certain areas of the country that he wanted, certain teams he wanted to go play for. Um, if you kind of create, you know, not a bidding war per se, but just, just, to, just to get some different teams into the, into the mix and take your time with it, because at some point somebody has to put their best foot forward. You mentioned the term bidding war. And when you look back on it, having New York, there was, I think, pressure or there was expectation in New York because people knew Carmelo wanted to play there. People heard the story at the wedding of the toast. I was there. You were there. <laughs> well, tell that story of the toast of the toast. Oh, you know, I mean, that, that's hey, that was at a that was at, at Mello's wedding, so I don't want to go into too much detail. But yeah, there was there was a there was a toast that I think you know made a little Chris in, Paul. You know, and it was you know, and, and looking back on it, and I've had lots of people ask me about that over the years. You know, it was an incredibly lighthearted moment where yeah. you know. Based on, you know, this is in the summer of 2010 where, you know, LeBron had just gone to Miami. And, you know, I think there was just this kind of crescendo where players were truly realizing that, you know, they had lots of different options and they could, they could genuinely on not, not steer certain aspects, but they, they were controlling their careers in a way that I think was more public than ever, than, than, than people had realized before. And, um, which is a credit to guys like, like LeBron, um, for, for steering that, for seeing that path. Um, but this was in the weeks after that. And it was a very lighthearted moment where it was just a group of friends, you know, making toast to each other and in a very special day. And, you know, unfortunately it was, you know, the, the wedding took place here in, in New York City. And, uh, you know, I think Amari had just come to, uh, New York. And, you know, there's lots of players in the room and everybody was having a good time. And you know, there might have been a glass of champagne or two, um, which is which is which should be on, on a wedding day. <laughs> and uh, so everybody was just feeling pretty good. And they just made a couple of lighthearted comments where, you know, my my dad and I were both in the room. And, you know, while obviously it, it stung a little bit, you know, we also understood that it wasn't. You know, it wasn't done in a, you know, derogatory fashion to, to us or our organization. It was just some guys having a good time on a wedding day. And I don't think my dad and I either took it personal, but it uh, got a lot of traction. It did get a lot of traction. <laughs> it did get a lot of traction. <clears throat> having Brooklyn, the Nets are moving to Brooklyn. They were very aggressive in trying to do a deal. When you look back on it, how ideal of a scenario was that for you to get everything you wanted and maybe then some out of New York because you had that threat of him going to their crosstown, the team now that was moving in 
to the city, did that, in the end, you say, okay, that helped our process with the Knicks? Yes. I don't think there's any, any way around it. I think that, you know, Nets ownership from uh, Mr. Prokhorov on down, you know, I, I created a relationship with those guys. Um, I had breakfast with them, you know, over NBA All-Star. He talked about NBA All-Star in 2011. I remember having breakfast in, in Michael's suite um, discussing, you know, different possibilities for the trade. And uh, very nice guys on both sides of the deal. Um, there were other teams that were kind of sitting out there very quietly uh, that were kind of putting in offers, you know, because it was a, it was a, I don't think it's, I'll have to double check the exact rules of how it's written in, a, in today's, uh, in, in today's NBA, but back then it was kind of an extend and, it was a tr- extend and trade and extend scenario where he was mm-hmm. immediately going to sign an extension wherever he went. And there was a couple teams lurking that were, uh, willing to take him, you know, with, without a commitment for an extension. Um, banking on that, you know, uncertainty on the labor side that he might want to sign wherever he went. And, uh, even though he had given us a list of teams, you know, there were some kind of things that we, we kept quiet behind the scenes with other teams being interested in, in an unsigned scenario. And, uh, I think Carmelo, you know, he also to Carmelo's credit. I think, you know, he wanted to give us a chance to not completely be left in the dust. And, uh, you know, we started talking to Brooklyn, um, and, uh, who were then, it was then in New Jersey moving mm-hmm. to Brooklyn. And, you know, when you really boiled it down, there was actually, you know, it's fun to really sit there and think about it because, Brooklyn, they backed out of that trade at one point. I don't know if you remember that, but they had a press conference where they said, Prokhorov you know, said, we're done. We're, we're out done. of this. We're done. We're out of this. And, and then everyone's like, okay, how long is that last thing? <clears throat> Tuesday. Well, yeah. Right. I remember going into Masai's office and I it was, we both looked at each other kind of like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen someone make a production out of it the way he did that yeah. day. Like usually you might quietly to announce it at a press conference was. That's yeah, a, that's a, yeah. And, like that. and that was a few weeks before All-Star. And so Masai and I sat there and we just said, nothing's obviously going to happen today. Let's go home. Let's kind of clear our heads and we'll come back in the morning. And we came back in the morning and I remember sitting and having a cup of coffee and I just looked at him and I was like, there's no way they're out. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, well, and I'm like, no, I'm like, you know, they're, they're, you know, when you sit and sit back and think about it, I'm like, we got a superstar who's available via trade. They're moving to a, you know, a new borough. You know, their, the competition here is their direct, you know, competition in the same market. And, uh, you know, I just feel like there's, there's something missing. And I think once we talked through it, he kind of agreed with me, but obviously there was nothing for us to do. And then, you know, I think leaving to go to right before we left to go to All Star, Masai and I were about to fly out, um, from Denver to LA and my phone rang and, uh, it was a representative from the Nets. And I remember just smiling and, uh, talked to him for a few minutes and I said, look, let me, let me get a few things together and we'll give you a ring back in a few hours. And, uh, I turned to Masai and I was like, they're back. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we both got a kick out of it. And, um, but yeah, I mean, those, they understood that there was a, you know, a, a rare commodity and like, if you want to call it that in the marketplace with, with a superstar you could acquire. And I think for both teams here in the New York market, um, it was a rare chance to, to go get a guy like that and to really try and move the needle uh, for their fan base. And so um, those teams jumped in with both feet. And uh, ultimately, uh, we had we actually had two deals that we found um, pretty pretty similar. Uh, we were able to structure them the same way, found a third team um, so we could clear out and kind of clear out our books going forward. Um, and we ultimately uh, decided to pull the trigger on the New York scenario, and it worked out very well for us. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is sponsored by the Starters. Catch the Starters every weeknight on NBA TV as they break down the biggest storylines 
from around the NBA. The show features top 10 plays of the week, debating whether league news is really just gossip, weekend whoopsies, and Lee dropping a ton of NBA trivia knowledge. Keep up with the starters via social on Twitter and Instagram at the starters and on Facebook at facebook.com slash the starters. And be sure to check out their deep dive podcast each Friday called The Drop, which is available for download from iTunes and NBA.com slash the starters. The decision you made at the time after George Carl had been named coach of the year and that you guys had had an exceptional regular season, I think 57 wins yeah. in the West yep. at a time where I think most of us expected George was going to get extended. You made a decision to let him go. Mm-hmm. Was that as you did what you felt was the right thing for where you were and mm-hmm. dealing with George and all the things that like, but still there had to be a point where you kind of looked at each other and said, okay, this is going to be received like you and Masai go, we're not going to get applauded necessarily for this on the outside, right? <laughs> yeah, and you know that was a. I mean, that might have been the. If I, if I have any, I know I have a patch of gray hairs in my head at this point. I'm 37, but I think I got a lot of them that summer, um, summer of 2013. Um, Masai had was in discussions with Toronto. Um, that was, you know, he he and I always we have a, such an open relationship, and we were such good friends that. I knew that if there was, you know, kind of if there was ever a scenario where Toronto might be interested that while he, I know he loved Denver and his heart and soul was in Denver, that there's an interesting opportunity out there for him. And so he was having those discussions and, um, he and I had, you know, we'd had a a conversation or two and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do at the moment. Um, but then Masai decided he was going to, going to go to Toronto and I was sitting there looking at our, our kind of our whole picture and with Masai's departure, that kind of, that that's what truly kind of it's kind of in a weird way actually made me say, well, maybe this is a, a good time for us to try to truly turn the page. I mean, George had been with us for, you know, 10 or 11 years at that point. Um, I think it was about 10 years, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had had a run of success there that was unprecedented in Nuggets history. I think that there was an interesting, there was a, it was an interesting split amongst our fans because we'd had a lot of regular season success, but that hadn't quite cr- translated to, uh, playoff success. We had made the playoffs every year, but, you know, we'd only made it out of the first round, uh, once, which is, you know, kind of a, a credit to, you know, I guess the, the, you know, the strength of our, of our group to be able to make it back 10 years in a row, but, uh, you know, also I think there was obviously always frustration because we were like, we always felt like there were, we, we could do more. Right. And, uh, George had one year left on his contract heading into that, that summer. And, you know, I knew he wanted to, to coach. And in a very weird way, I thought it was the right thing to do because, um, I was letting a, an amazing coach go with one year on his contract, um, to have still have enough kind of runway to where he'd go coach somewhere else. And then, you know, I thought that, you know, it was a good chance for me to try to jumpstart our program in a different direction. Um, the NBA is a player's league and, uh, you know, whether, you know, the different reasons of why Mello or different guys didn't want to be there was, you know, it always lands in my lap, um, as an owner. Um, but I thought it was the right time to try to truly try to build a, a player's program in Denver. And I'm really pleased with the progress we've made over the last few years. You know, I think we, uh, it was probably too much change, um, in hindsight, you know, with trying to bring in Tim, Arturis. Um, and at the time, you know, Tim and I were trying to hit the ground running with it, with the draft. And then, you know, bringing in a new coach and Brian Shaw, it was probably too much change. And it was a good lesson for me to learn. But, 
Um, we were without Danilo Gallinari, um, who was uh, coming off knee surgery. Uh, and I knew that no matter what that following, we had, you know, free agent and Andre Iguodala. And I knew no matter what that following year was going to be challenging. And, uh, I thought it would just make sense to try to try to start the process a little bit sooner. And, uh, ultimately I, you know, turned the focus on myself, brought a little bit of heat, I guess my way you might say. Um, but you know, I came out a better person and a, and a better, better executive on the other end. And I think, you know, even though we might've stumbled out of the gate a little bit, um, you know, I don't know if. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Brian Shaw. I don't know if he was the right fit um, in hindsight, um, but I'm really pleased with uh, the job that Coach Malone has done. I see a lot of uh, growth out of our younger players, and I see um, a lot of the uh, the bigger names around the league kind of looking our way saying, you know, Coach Malone's doing a heck of a job. You know, you guys got some really good young talent. Um, you know, he's, he's a tough guy, but he communicates pretty well. And uh, that's, to me, one of the, the keys of the NBA today is communication. And, uh, can you communicate with these guys and, and develop a relationship and, uh, and get them to play for you? And the NBA more than, you know, it's unique for me because I see players around the world from, you know, the English Premier League, um, to the NHL, uh, being out in LA now with, um, you know, I was hanging around the Rams some this fall and seeing what Sean McVay has done out there. Um, I think, you know, Sean's a great example. He's a really good communicator. Um, he understands what, uh, you know, the players want, want to hear, uh, in the moment, um, on an individual and a group basis. And he continues to challenge them, uh, in new ways while, while making it fun. I think, you know, that's kind of one of the core principles of who I am as a person and who our businesses are, you know, especially in these sports businesses is that I always tell our, our front office guys, I'm like, look, at the end of the day, if we're not having fun, then we're in the wrong business and we should all, we should all figure out something else to do because we're all kind of living a dream. Um, but the NBA is a, a, a player's league more than others. And uh, that was kind of, you know, the decision I made back in 2013. And I think Coach Malone's done a great job getting us there uh, today. You mentioned the access you have to the Rams and being around and seeing what Sean McVay did this year. And you're running the avalanche and access to the arsenal. Executives go around and try to learn from different teams. And, like, you know, you'll see a basketball guy at Pete Carroll's training camp or, you know, College football guys going to spend time with Eric Spolstrom. I mean, like, there's always lots of crossover. How much has what you've been able, and, and the Rams probably are a pretty good example, what they did and what one coach could mean to a transformation. How beneficial has that been for you to be able to do all that and kind of come back to the nuggets with different ideas or different perspectives on how to, like you said, communicate to your guys, reach your guys, create an environment that you think, you know, like can impact winning. You know, it's it's all different, but it's all fruit to fruit in in some in some sort of way. You know, whether you're sitting on sitting in on you know transfer deadline day um out at out at our Arsenal training facility um like I did a few weeks ago or you're sitting in the trade deadline room of you know, the NBA, uh, it's, it's similar conversations and it can all be kind of compared and contrasted because, you know, the, the wants and needs are all very similar across the different sports. You know, one of the, <clears throat> the interesting things I was able to kind of apply recently was, you know, all the lessons that I learned throughout the Carmelo Anthony saga was to discuss them in depth with uh, are the general manager of our hockey team, uh, the Colorado Avalanche is Joe Sackick. And we, we faced a, a situation, um, with a player, uh, named Matt Duchesne, um, kind of towards the end of last year and then over the summer and then even into this year, um, where, 
you know, the player was, was hopeful to move to another team. Um, he's a very high caliber player, high caliber person. And, you know, Joe, you know, with the 24 hour news cycle, I mean, you start to see it kind of taking shape again. And, uh, you know, we had to ask, um, the player who was an ultimate professional throughout the process to come back to training camp, even though publicly everyone knew what the scenario was. And, uh, you know, the young man did a great job, um, coming in and being, being a pro. But what I told Joe was that, you know, those lessons that I learned throughout the Carmelo saga, um, was that when you have an asset or a player like that who's also a, a you know a good person um teams are always going to want that and so take your time don't be don't be on someone else's time frame um in this because if you try to rush into it um there's really there's no positive for our end you know we're we're looking at this over several years and you know th- just keep weighing your options and you'll know when the right one comes along and to Joe's credit he applied those principles that I talked about um in his own way. And ultimately we got a wonderful deal and now we're set up very well for the future. Um, so it's, it's cool for me to kind of take little things that I've learned. Um, and whether it's a tidbit from Arsene Wenger that I'm sharing with, you know, coach Malone, where we have uh saying over at Arsenal, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it's victory through harmony. And I think that, uh, you know, victory through harmony can take a lot of different meanings, but you know, for me, I think that, Victory through harmony comes from communication. I harp on that a lot with our guys across all of our different teams is that you got to have open and honest dialogue about the reality of everything that we're in. Because if we're sugarcoating anything um, about ourselves, about our team, about our direction, you know, we're only kidding ourselves and we're going to we're going to be be worse off for it in the long run. And, uh, so open communication is kind of one of my fundamental principles and, um, that victory through harmony, uh, like I said, it can mean a lot of things, but I know our basketball guys love that saying as well. We talked about it, uh, going through these different, um, when we hired coach Malone, that was actually one of the questions that I asked. I'm like, you know, what would, what is victory through harmony? That sounds kind of funny, but I'm like, you know, I remember talking to a few of the candidates and they all kind of smiled and they're like, well, that's an interesting one. And, uh, they all had their own different tidbits about it, but it's, it's fun to be able to, to take different things that you learn from different people. Um, and whether that's sitting there talking to, you know, I was at the Super Bowl last year and got a chance to pick Bill Polian's brain. And I mean, you know, that's you know, an amazing, an amazing guy, you know, to mm-hmm. be able to just sit there for a few minutes and talk with. And then you get to interact with lots of different people from lots of different sports. And I, uh, I enjoy it immensely. <laughs> when, when Masai left and you hired Tim Connolly, Tim had been the assistant GM in New Orleans. You know, you get lots of advice when you're running a team. Everybody tells you who you should hire. And oh, you yeah. need You need someone to compliment you. And I, I imagine what you probably heard a lot of was you need to bring in a veteran GM. You're a mm-hmm. young president, a young board of governor running a team. So you need to compliment your inexperience and bring in a veteran GM or a veteran top executive, um, which is exactly not what you did in both the hires <laughs> you've done. What? Why? Um, you know... I think that, uh, you know, if, if the scenario ever presents itself again, you know, I think that, you know, I, I will, I'm always open to, to who I think is, is the best for the job in the moment. And, you know, for me, there was, a, you know, some uncertainty. Obviously, I knew that, uh, we were going to be going into a scenario where, you know, we might have to take a step back to eventually go forward, you know, in a, in a scenario like that or where it plays out over several years, there was one thing that I knew that we absolutely had to nail. And that was our drafts. And, uh, I think, you know, one of our core principles of our, our organizations is, you know, if, as long as you can draft fairly well, 
you know, you can make it through most most situations because you're always going to have talent. And at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to win many games at a professional level unless you have some pretty pretty good talent around. And you know, I think um, we made it through the muck of those first few years. And, uh, we got some pretty good young players out of it and, you know, nobody bats a thousand. Um, you know, I, we, we took a lot of heat and I still see it kind of tossed around for moving, moving down for where we were in the draft last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I think the Utah Jazz picked up a heck of a player and I want to give a quick shout out to Quinn Snyder, who I think is mm-hmm. doing an unbelievable job this year. One kind of one of the under the radar candidates that, you know, I would say for, really coach of the year almost. I mean, I think he's doing as good of a coaching job around the league as anybody um, with all the changes they've had. But, you know, we moved down. And for us, that that move was about, um, you know, we, I remember sitting in that room and talking about it on draft night. And, you know, we were we were pretty high on, on our young backcourt. Um, we still very are, very much are, uh, Jamal Murray and Gary Harris. And for us, it was about, it wasn't really more about, you know, who we might miss on 13. It was about picking up Trey Lyles. And, uh, and still having the opportunity to draft in the first round. Trey was a guy we had drafted or we had rated very highly coming out of the draft uh, two years prior. Um, we actually tried to jump back into the draft to, to nab him um, before Utah did. Uh, so it was about moving down and you know, I think our, our roster is still kind of, kind of coming together and will be. But when you, when you take a look at guys like that are still around the league, whether it's, you know, Gary Harris uh, where he was taken mm-hmm. Jamal Murray at seven, um, obviously Nikola Jokic is yeah. the one you got to mention, but there's, you know, there's guys that are still kind of coming up through the system, whether it's Wancho or Malik, there's, there's some good, good players there. And I think that they're all really good people as well. I think, you know, we get, we harp on, I've said some of the things are fundamental principles, but you know, we'll start with good people and when we'll figure the rest out on, uh, as we go. But I think we got a good group of guys and Tim, like you said, he was a scout, but as long as we nailed those drafts, uh, you know, I was, I was confident that we were going to be able to make it through most situations. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Gillette. Guys, I've been shaving for more than 25 years, and I've tried a number of different shaving products, but one thing's for sure, I've always come back to Gillette. Gillette is a brand that I trust, and I know will always give me the quality shave that I look for. Once I started using the Fusion Pro Shield, I knew there was no going back to any other kind of razor. The razor helps shield your skin from irritation, allowing me to feel confident that I'm going to look my best for interviews on and off the air. Plus, the precision trimmer on the back is great for those hard-to-reach areas and for styling facial hair. It also features a microcomb that helps guide stubble to the blades and has flexball technology that moves to the shape of your face to get virtually every hair. Now, thanks to Gillette On Demand, I can get Gillette Performance delivered straight to my door. So forget forgetting to buy blades. Try Gillette On Demand to get Gillette Performance delivered straight to your door. Subscribe today and get every fourth order free. Visit Gillette online at www.gilletteondemand.com. You mentioned the draft, and I know there was an idea that kind of a proposal lots of proposals get brought to the league office some really out there um (laughs) no and some but but all sort of mostly trying to address something that's seen as a problem or an issue or something we can make better Mm -hmm. and they come in all shapes and sizes i mean there was a few years ago you know mike zarin in boston had that wheel idea Mm -hmm. on the draft which got you know 
it got people thinking and, yeah. and it was <clears throat> unique. 